Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then, there are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. It's Friday, September 5th, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Chris Mooney. And I'm Indre Viscontis. Each week, we bring you a new, in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds. You can also find us on Twitter at inquiringshow and on Facebook at slash Inquiring Minds Podcast. If you don't already, you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or any other podcasting app. We wanted to let you know that this episode of Inquiring Minds is sponsored by Audible.com. They are a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment with over 150,000 titles to choose from. And exclusively for listeners to this episode, Audible has a great offer. You can get a free audiobook. Yep, totally free. All you have to do is go to this specific URL to get it. Audiblepodcast.com slash Inquiring Minds. Once again, that's Audiblepodcast.com slash Inquiring Minds. This week, I interviewed William Poundstone. He's a Pulitzer Prize-nominated science writer, and he's the author of 13 books, including Are You Smart Enough to Work at Google? And most recently, a book called Rock Breaks Scissors, a practical guide to outguessing and outwitting almost everybody. And if you've been a fan of the Cosmos series, he also has a biography out of Carl Sagan. And just a tidbit for you, he is the cousin of comedian Paula Poundstone. So all around interesting guy. And I really wanted to talk to him about how we process randomness. And why is it that we as humans seem to be pretty bad at behaving randomly, even when we're trying hard to do that. So when I asked him, what is it that makes us what, what kind of problems do we have? What, what pitfalls do we fall into when we try to behave randomly? Here's what he had to say. He surveyed people in suburban Chicago and asked them to make up a sequence of five random coin tosses, like heads and tails. And what he found was that the sequences that people made up were remarkably similar. He found, first of all, that the most popular first toss was heads. And when I say most popular, 78% of the public chose heads as the first toss of their random sequence. And he also found that people liked sequences that were very well shuffled, uh, like heads, heads, tails, heads. That was actually the most commonly chosen sequence. Uh, it, well, it's not too surprising that the least common ones were just five heads in a row or five tails in a row. And people figured that just wasn't random. And throughout the interview, we also talked about ways in which knowing that other people don't behave randomly can help you outwit and outguess them. So it was a really fun interview. And, uh, you know, Chris, what do you think about his definition of randomness? 
I think it's, well, let me step back. I think it's crucial to define randomness because we have all these people running around saying, that's so random, and they have no idea what it means, right? And so I actually went to the Urban Dictionary for this, and they said that using the word random in this clueless way is, quote, a desperate plea for others to recognize how totally against the grain of the norm you are and that you're really crazy and out there. Trouble is, being random is predictable, boring, moronic, and extremely sad. <laughs> yeah, well, and that's actually, you know, it's a, it's a good point that he makes, too, is that, you know, we have this idea that randomness means, you know, somehow odd or outlying or, you know, alternating. But in fact, randomness can just mean very banal, normal, average stuff most of the time. Yep. We're going to say random stuff on this show. <laughs> okay. So let's, let, let's move on. Um, so I have a rant that I need to share with you. This is very, let's hear it. this is very close to my heart. Okay. First of all, we love Neil Tyson, Neil deGrasse Tyson. We, we love him a lot. So I'm allowed to criticism, criticize him and still love him, <laughs> which is what I'm going to do. Uh, so there's been this piece at the blog, uh, Patheos, where someone did an interview with Neil Tyson. And in the interview, Tyson apparently said the following, and I'm going to quote. He said, It's wrong to simply attack the right for science denial. Liberals cannot claim to fully embrace science. There's plenty of science denial from the left. And the blogger who did the interview, his name is Dan Errol, um, basically reading his interview, it's clear that Tyson is referring to two issues in particular, vaccines and the science of GMOs. So here's the problem I have. When it's climate change or evolution... We have this really good polling data showing that people on the right deny a, an undeniable scientific fact way more than people on the left. Okay, That's really, really clear, and you really can't argue with it because it shows up again and again in so many polls. But with GMOs and vaccines, we do not have the opposite. We do not have polls showing that people on the left way more than people on the right overwhelmingly deny some clearly established scientific fact. Uh, in fact, if anything, we have the opposite. In a recent study using a nationally representative sample of a thousand Americans, Stephen Lewandowski and his colleagues writing in PLOS One found that, quote, opposition to GM foods was not associated with worldview constructs. And they went on to say that this result is striking in light of reports in the media that have linked opposition to GM foods with the political left. Okay, and then there's vaccines. And in the same study, they didn't find a significant link there with whether you're on the left or on the right, and whether you deny the science of vaccines. And Dan Kahan from Yale Law School, who we've also had on the show, found something similar. He found the idea that vaccine denial is tied to the left, quote, lacks any factual basis in his research. In fact, he found a small increase in beliefs that vaccines are risky as you move to the right of the political spectrum. So we love Neil Tyson, but I think he's got this wrong. <laughs> these data suggest that, yes, some people on the left believe these things, but the evidence does not support the idea that these beliefs are clustered on the left. Rather, they are basically broadly distributed wrong beliefs. So the idea that there's something unique about the right and denying science still stands. And let me exit, exit soapbox. Dismount. <laughs> Well, you know, I have to say I'm just as surprised as I hope Neil Tyson is when he listens to your rant, uh, that, that that's the case. Cause of course I would have assumed exactly the same thing that he did, which is that, you know, especially the vaccine and, and, and even more so the GMO issue was primarily associated with liberalism rather than conservatism. So I'm, I'm surprised to hear that there isn't such a correlation. It might be different in Europe, for instance. This is, these, these are American data. 
But yeah, I think, but the more you think about it, the vaccine thing, there are all these anti-government people who don't trust the FDA and don't trust the um, the CDC. And so they think that the black vaccines aren't safe because the government can't be trusted. And that tends to be a right-wing sort of belief. Um, with GMOs, it's this idea that, you know, we should have natural food. And to me, that's kind of an inherently conservative <laughs> belief that resists change. So, you know, I think it's, I think they're complicated. So do you think that there might be a bimodal distribution in that overall people who are more liberal are more likely to, if they're going to have any kind of anti-scientific view, you know, err, err on the side of anti-GMO and anti-vaccine, uh, whereas you have this like, you know, subset of libertarians who are anti-anything government related uh, or corporation related that kind of pull everyone to the from the, you know, from the right, pull the data in that direction. Does that make any sense? Yeah, that's possible. I think also it might be that there is an extreme left that is so rare that in a survey you don't get many of them <laughs> right and so they're not it's hard they're not really very present in a re- nationally representative sample um and yet they might be over uh over present when you analyze the public debate so i think that's also possible and I guess it's important for us to know because, of course, how what what beliefs people come to this information with, uh, you know, is going to dictate how they're going to incorporate new information. So, mm-hmm. so thanks for <laughs> helping us navigate these murky waters. Yep, I'm done. Okay. <laughs> so, speaking of murky waters, <laughs> uh, this is here trigger warning. This is going to be pretty gross, uh, but it's something that new parents like me think about a lot. At least those of us, I think, that have a liberal bent. <laughs> Uh, and care about the environment. I'm just assuming that those two things go together, which may or may not be true. Uh, but yeah, the fact that, you know, we go through so many disposable diapers every day is kind of shocking. And I, I remember when I first got pregnant, I thought, oh, I'm definitely going to try to go with compostable diapers, which first of all, don't exist as far as I know, or at least they're not, they're not, they haven't been recommended by any of my friends. Um, or cloth diapers, which have their own problem, which is you think, okay, cloth diapers, that's the most environmentally friendly way of going about it. But in fact, the amount of water and chemicals that you need to use in order to wash those diapers far outweighs the, what the purported environmental benefit in, in the opinion of, of some thought leaders. So this is a real conundrum for parents who want to be environmentally conscious, but have a child who doesn't know how to go to the potty in the right place. Um, so there is a recent study that came out that caught my attention in Mexico. And it turns out that Mexico is actually the third largest consumer of disposable diapers in the world. So this is a real problem. Who knows for why, them. but yeah. Okay. Well, maybe, yeah, I don't know why. Maybe, you know, they're, they're probably right at that, that area where, you know, they, they, they have enough babies and they have enough of an income to afford disposable diapers. Something like that. Anyway, uh, so there is a project led by a Mexican scientist, Rosa Maria Espinoza Valdemar. Um, she's at the Autonomous Metropolitan University in Azcapotzalco. Not sure how to pronounce that, but maybe I didn't do too bad a job. And in any case, she is trying to help these disposable diapers get degraded by growing mushrooms on them. <laughs> so, you know, first of all, she says she got this idea because she she knew that mushrooms feed on cellulose. And there's a lot of cellulose in disposable diapers. Um, but of course, disposable diapers also have non-biodegradable synthetic elements, uh, which collect the fluids. So she s- decided that the first thing to do was 
to get the diapers sterilized. So they're sterilized by autoclave, you know, to get to make sure that there's, um, you know, no more nasty bacteria there. Um, and also a material that contains a substance that uh, the fungus needs uh, from pasture, grape pomace, coffee, or pineapple crown. So it sounds sounds all like good ingredients. Uh, then they grow the mushrooms on what's sort of left. And uh, it turns out that, in fact, the diapers get reduced by 80% in terms of their volume. So let's say you have a kilo of diapers. Um, by the end of the process, it's going to be reduced to 200 cr- grams of diaper material and 300 grams of mushrooms, which is kind of awesome. So let me get at the really kind of gross part. So this lab actually decided to eat the mushrooms uh. <laughs> that they had grown on these diapers. Uh, and they said, you know, they, they performed an analysis and found that, you know, they contain the right amount of protein, fat, vitamins, and minerals, about the same as in commercial yeast. Uh, and they don't tell you how good they tasted, uh, but they do note that the project is not intended to produce mushrooms for human consumption. Um, the main goal is to get rid of diapers to avoid damaging the environment more. Um, however, he suggests that the mushrooms can be used as food supplement for cattle, uh, which you know might might be another way of being able to use some of this material. So some of the studies that you find on these science aggregator sites, science news, like this one, are totally random. Okay. <laughs> and and gross. But you know, and uh, gross, but I feel like this is one of those cases where I say gross, but if I was just going to get into a fully scientific mindset, I would realize that that's only a gut impulse that probably isn't actually grounded in fact. It's sort of like, you know, you, water is purified, but you don't want to drink it because it might have once contained like sewage, but it doesn't anymore. So you really shouldn't like think about where it came from. They're probably doing something similar here. I mean, it's probably not as gross as it sounds. And I think, you know, calling them mushrooms makes them sound like, you know, edible products. If we just called them fungi, <laughs> then, you know, maybe people wouldn't seem so well, grossed out by it. I hope they cooked them. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if I want to even go that far. But if you actually look at the pictures, they do very much look like diapers with mushrooms growing on them. So go there you have it. Go science. <laughs> Well, so with that, uh, you probably need a short break just as much as we do. So we'll be back in a minute with my interview with William Poundstone. Once again, we want to remind you that today's episode of Inquiring Minds is sponsored by Audible.com. Audible is a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment with over 150,000 titles that you can choose from on topics ranging from politics to the classics. Basically, what Audible lets you do is listen to books whenever and wherever you want. And specifically for listeners of this episode of this show, Audible is giving you a free audiobook. So all you have to do is go to the URL audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. Again, that's audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. And you can get yourself a free audiobook, including both of the books that I talked about uh, at the beginning of this show by William Poundstone. The first one is called Are You Smart Enough to Work at Google? It's a great compendium of logic puzzles that are used in interviews for high-tech companies. And Rock Breaks Scissors, a practical guide to outguessing and outwitting almost everybody. Let me also add that if you like your hosts and you like Audible, then you could get my book, The Republican Brain, there, and you can get Indre's uh, new series of lectures, 12 Essential Scientific Concepts, there. So go on over to audiblepodcast.com slash inquiring minds and get yourself a free book. 
Welcome to Inquiring Minds, William Poundstone. Yes, good to be with you. So you argue in your book that the psychological study of how we interpret randomness may have actually begun with studies of psychics or extrasensory perception. So I wanted to start by talking about a mind-reading experiment that you describe in your book that the Zenith Radio Company ran back in 1937. So what happened there? Yes. Well, back then, Joseph Banks Rhine was famous as a proponent of ESP. He did all these studies. He got a lot of attention. Uh, and the head of Zenith Radio at the time was very big on publicity stunts. And he was also very interested in ESP. So he got this idea, why don't we have a nationwide test of ESP via radio? Uh, the idea was that they would have a bunch of people in a radio um, studio, and they would try to transmit their thoughts to the the nationwide radio audience, and then people at home could write down what they think they received and send that in, and scientists would look at it and decide if, if they had shown ESP or not. Uh, and the appeal of this was that you would have, I mean, you could have millions of people, uh, which would make it much more statistically valid than, than the studies that had been up to that time. Uh, so Zenith actually funded this. It was a radio series, uh, and they did a number of these tests. Uh, and they started doing it, and uh, the evidence seemed to indicate that uh, people really were showing ESP. Uh, what they found was that, you know, they'd be transmitting things like black and white or uh, heads and tails in random sequences. Uh, and, and the majority of the audience was correct in most of their guesses. Uh, so this seemed, you know, very impressive. And uh, the head of Zenith put out big press releases saying that, you know, there's no way this could be a coincidence. Uh, but as it turned out, there was one psychologist on his staff, Lewis Goodfellow, uh, who looked at these results and realized that there was another explanation. Uh, and what he realized was that uh, he basically said, suppose there is no such thing as ESP. Well, in that case, those people at home would simply be inventing random sequences of the, the choices they were transmitting, like black and white or whatever. Uh, and he realized that it's not so easy for a person to make up a random sequence. When people try to do that, they fall into certain unconscious patterns and these patterns are really very similar for everyone. Now, to prove that, Goodfellow did some experiments of his own, kind of on the side. Uh, he surveyed people in suburban Chicago and asked them to make up a sequence of five random coin tosses, like heads and tails. And what he found was that the sequences that people made up were remarkably similar. He found, first of all, that the most popular first toss was heads. And when I say most popular, 78% of the public chose heads as the first toss of their random sequence. And he also found that people liked sequences that were very well shuffled, uh, like heads, heads, tails, heads. That was actually the most commonly chosen sequence. Uh, it, well, it's not too surprising that the least common ones were just five heads in a row or five tails in a row. And people figured that just wasn't random. Uh, so Goodfellow was able to show that this was really the explanation for these uh, Zenith radio ESP results. Uh, people were basically submitting most of very similar answers uh, in their guesses. And so whenever the, the randomly chosen sequences that they were transmitting that week happened to be similar to these popular guesses, uh, it suddenly looked like the public had a great deal of ESP. 
Uh, but when the sequences were not so popular, then suddenly the telepaths were off their game. And it turned out that the few times they did that, they just happened to get more of these common sequences. Uh, so he really showed that there was this very believable explanation. Now, he's known sort of as a debunker of ESP, but the, the amazing thing was that uh, what he showed was that you actually can predict uh, people's behavior when they're trying to come up with random or arbitrary choices. And at the time, that seemed like a very abstract thing, but it's actually becoming incredibly important today uh, now that we've got big data and advertisers trying to, you know, check what you buy online and try to make predictions from that. It basically demonstrated that a lot of the, the little everyday decisions we make are incredibly predictable, provided you've got a little bit of data to work from. Uh, and uh, that's become a very big business today, needless to say. So what are some of the rules of randomness that, that we, you know, as humans, if we're trying to be random, what pitfalls do we fall into? Well, one of them is that when we're actually confronted with randomness, uh, we don't see it as random. Uh, we see it as, as having uh, predictable uh, lucky streaks and, and, and losing streaks. Uh, this, this is well known to uh, baseball fans. It's known as the hot hand effect. Um, for years, fans have noticed that uh, the b baseball players seem to get on these amazing winning streaks. They'll make one basket, then they'll make another, and they'll have this very long streak of making baskets with no losses uh, that seems to be much better than their average uh, run of luck. Uh, well, back in the 1970s, uh, a group of psychologists, including Amos Tversky, who was a very famous behavioral psychologist, uh, got interested in this whole issue, and they did a study. They uh, they looked at actual NBA statistics. Uh, they actually interviewed NBA coaches and players, uh, and they did some experiments of their own with the Cornell basketball team. And what they found was that these hot streaks that you perceive, and really every fan does perceive them, uh, are basically illusions. Uh, in other words, these hot streaks are no longer than you would expect if, uh, if the player was, was, if you were simply tossing a coin that had the same chance of coming up heads as that player had uh, of, of uh, making the basket. Uh, so in this case, you're looking at something that's random, but the perception is very different. The perception is that you see these hot streaks that seem to be predictable. And needless to say, this is an incredibly important thing uh, in the whole sports betting industry. Uh, bookies love it when when fans believe that they can predict things that they really can't. Uh, it's this this overconfidence that we can predict, uh, you know, who's going to win the next game that causes people to put down their hard-earned money. Uh, but in fact, they're generally dealing from essentially random noise. They don't really have this predictability, and uh, that's very good for the bookies. So I also want to think about this from the perspective of the player. So in this case, the basketball player who thinks he has a hot hand uh, then might behave differently and thereby, you know, alter what would have been, uh, you know, his behavior previously. So I can see this working in two ways. I could see the person becoming more confident and that actually helping his game, right? Because he's not second guessing. Or I could see him becoming overconfident and now taking shots that are riskier, um, which lead to an overall, you know, decrease in the amount of points that he could actually score. Is there any evidence of, you know, how the hot hand affects the players themselves um, if they believe that they are, in fact, hot. 
Well, that's uh, one of the reasons why it's so easy to believe. I mean, we generally think that if you're confident, that's good, you know, just as long as you aren't too overconfident. Uh, so it was very easy to believe that maybe the hot hand was real. But when they looked at actual NBA statistics, they found that whether it makes them confident or overconfident, basically you just end up with what you would expect if it was totally random. But there is one way in which this does affect the players because the coaches believe in, in the hot hand, and they tell the players that, you know, pass to, to your teammate if he seems to be on a hot hand, and uh, try to block the opposing team's player who seems to be on a hot hand. So this very definitely does influence the strategy uh, that you see on the court. Uh, but according to the statistics, uh, basically, it's, it's not helping the teams because uh, the whole thing is an illusion. So there's another sport that you talk about in your book in which it's more of a outwitting game than, say, in basketball, and that is baseball, where you have a batter who is trying to predict where a pitch will land before the pitcher has even released the ball. So what is the advice that you have uh, to those batters who are trying to predict that pitch? Yeah, uh, I mean, obviously you have a real advantage if you can predict what pitch is coming next. Uh, and th that's very much part of the inner strategy uh, of baseball. But what they've found is that uh, pitchers are not very good at randomizing. Uh, now, of course, every pitcher is different and every batter is different, and they try to take that into account. But if, say, against uh, two particular players, you've decided that you want to throw a fastball, say, 65% of the time, uh, they've found that, that players tend to alternate too much. They'll throw a fastball this time, then they'll definitely try something else the next time, whereas uh, statistically, if, if you were really being random, there would be a fairly good chance uh, of throwing a fastball twice in a row. Uh, but people tend not to want to, to do that. They feel that that just isn't random and they have to alternate more. Uh, but you can actually use that. Uh, since you know that, uh, that a bas, uh, that a fastball, uh, is, is about 3% less likely to be followed by another fastball just because of that, uh, you can prepare for, for some of the other pitches. Uh, so there is, uh, really, uh, room to take advantage of that. So I wanted to, this sort of brought me to think about what it is, what it's like to be in that situation, to be that batter. And, you know, they go through a, a long series of training uh, so that they can actually get information from the body movements of the pitcher before he releases the ball that are not really available necessarily to consciousness. Uh, it becomes kind of an automated, automated uh, skill that they, that they develop. And uh, thinking consciously might actually get in their own way. Um, so, you know, to what extent, if we're trying to behave randomly or we're trying to predict randomness, should we rely on our intuition rather than trying to consciously outwit or outguess our opponent? Well, you've, you've got a very good point. I mean, if, if you can actually, uh, show that you do have this way of telling from, you know, body language or something what, what pitch is coming, I mean, I would definitely go with that. Uh, but in, in many types of situations, you don't necessarily have that. You're, you're trying to really know what to, to expect. Uh, and in that case, I think you have to be aware that people do have this tendency to alternate too much. Uh, another tendency you, you, you see is that when something doesn't work, when someone uh, does something unsuccessfully, 
uh, in that case, they're particularly likely to switch to another alternative, uh, which kind of makes sense, but it's also very predictable, and it's something that uh, players can use strategically. So I want to talk a little bit more about why it is that we are bad at understanding randomness. And, you know, so as you were saying earlier, is that there sort of seems to be two kind of patterns that come out. One is that we seem to prefer things that that seem random if they are alternating uh, to some extent. Uh, and we tend to stay away from or we tend to think that things are not random if they're repeating. Uh, so is there a way in which we sort of ha- like use a kind of baseline understanding of how often something should occur? And then do we are we comparing it to that? Like, so for example, in the case of a coin toss, because we know that it should be 50-50, um, if it's not 50-50 in a series of 10 tosses, then we tend to think that it's not random. Um, are, are we kind of incorporating these these prior odds, I would say, uh, in our decisions about randomness? Yes, exactly. What, what you've just described, uh, is actually known as the law of small numbers. Uh, it was proposed by Amos Tversky and Daniel Kahneman, who, of course, is a Nobel Prize winning economist and psychologist. Uh, basically, it says that we expect very small samples to represent the underlying odds. So if you, cl- if you toss a coin 10 times, you expect them to be about five heads and five tails, even though statistics says that it's pretty common to get some lopsided results if you've only tossed the, the coin uh, 10 times. So uh, we, we have all these sort of false positives where we figure there must be something wrong with that coin or maybe the person's got some magic uh, hot hand in in tossing coins. Uh, But it's very interesting, the question you ask about why we have this wrong perception of randomness. Uh, There have actually just, uh, just recently, since the book was published, uh, been some experiments with, uh, with chimpanzees where they, uh, basically got a, a, a sort of computer game that the chimps could play and they showed that they exhibit these same phenomenon that we see in humans. They believe in a hot hand. Uh, if they get a banana when they, they, you know, predict where, uh, a, a, a sign is going to appear on the computer screen, uh, they tend to, uh, to expect a, a hot hand type result too. Uh, so, so obviously, it's it's something not just humans, but even uh, other primates have. Uh, one idea, uh, and uh, it's only a theory, but uh, I think it it sounds somewhat reasonable, uh, is that if you look at the natural world, um, it's really not very random. In other words, if you're a hunter and gatherer, you're looking for food. Uh, food in in the natural world does not occur at random. Instead, if you find one cherry, it's probably on a cherry tree, and there's a lot of different cherries there. Uh, and that's probably in a region where there might be other cherry trees. On the other hand, there are areas where maybe you're in the desert and there's no food at all. So we kind of expect that, you know, good things and bad things come in clumps. Uh, so it's only more recently in our society where we've had things like, you know, uh, sports and gambling equipment and markets that are very efficient, uh, that we have a situations where we really confront randomness and confront, uh, you know, strategizing with another very intelligent being who's trying to fool us. 
Uh, so it may be that it's relatively recent in our evolution that we've really had to, to confront these issues. Uh, so obviously we're not too well prepared for them uh, in terms of, uh, of what we're born with, uh, in terms of how we're sort of hardwired to think. And if you want to deal with that, you really have to, to learn some other ways to think. So yeah, it sounds like, you know, for a long time in our evolution, evolutionary history, it benefited us to see patterns. But nowadays, recognizing that there is no pattern seems to be just as important. So is there a way that is, is there a, a way of a sort of assessing randomness that, that has kind of like general rules that we can apply? Or do we really need to go into specific instances the way you do in your book in order to figure out how to outwit and outguess our opponents? Well, I, I think both help. Uh, actually, what what's kind of striking in the book is that I go into you know many different applications from uh, guessing on a multiple choice test to trying to win an Oscar pool, and you find that basically the the same uh, basic themes keep coming up. Uh, again, we've already discussed them. It's it's that uh, people tend to alternate too much when they're trying to be random, and when they are confronted with randomness, uh, they think that it's predictable when really it's not. So really, those are the two late motifs uh, of the book. Uh, but of course, each situation is a little bit different. So it does help to look at the specifics too. So I wanted to start out with another sports analogy. And I, and I promise our listeners who are not sports fans that this is the last one. Um, and this is the soccer penalty kicks that you described. So, so tell us what's going on there. Yeah, well, that, that's quite interesting. In a penalty kick, uh, the goalie, you know, has to stand a certain distance uh, uh, from the, from the kicker and the kicker gets one kick. If, if the, the goalie can intercept it, then, uh, then the kicker does not get the point. And often games are decided by this, so it's, it's incredibly important. Well, the interesting thing is, uh, you know, the, the kicker obviously wants, can, can kick it to the left or the right or directly to the goalie. Uh, and the goalie basically has to predict that because you've just got a split second to react and you, you pretty much have to decide even before the, uh, the, the person does kick. Uh, so there is a lot of incentive to, uh, to strategize here. Uh, the interesting thing they found is that this is actually one of the few places in sports where they are reasonably random. Um, where you don't see them like alternating left, right, uh, as you might expect in other sports. Uh, and it's not entirely clear why that is, but one thing they've found is that, you know, since a given kicker will confront a given goalie in a penalty kick pretty infrequently, they may not think of it the way we do in, say, baseball, that you're, uh, that you're involved in this, uh, you know, continuous sequence. You may think of it as just a one-time thing, and it's a little easier to randomize in that situation. But there is actually another interesting effect going on in soccer, uh, and it's that when a person, uh, you know, really needs to, to strategize when the game may, may, you know, depend on it, uh, they tend to go to the right. In other words, the goal uh, tends to favor his right side. Uh, so in that situation, it would be in the kicker's advantage to kick to the right, which would be the goalie's left, because uh, in that case, uh, you have a much better chance uh, of actually making the point. Uh, so in that case, and I actually understand that this is something that soccer coaches do take very seriously now. It was published uh, in an article, uh, and it's already started to enter their strategizing. Now, it will be interesting to see if uh, if everyone becomes aware of this, whether they'll have to sort of re-strategize again. 
Yeah, and it made me wonder if that also applied to left-handed uh, goalies, or you know, with, is this because they're they're sort of you know better with their right side of their body, uh, and is, is it's, they're more comfortable in these kinds of situations? So that I'd be interested to see some of those data. Yeah, well, actually, th- that particular paper was inspired by dogs and the fact that they tend to nod their head to the right and uh, and to wag their tail to the right when they see someone they like. Well, there goes my theory. <laughs> <laughs> so another thing that we encounter all the time, of course, nowadays is devising new passwords. And so you suggest in your book that there are ways in which you can guess someone's password uh, more so than just random guessing. Yes, definitely. Because uh, this is actually much like that Zenith ESP experiment I described. Uh, when people try to make up a random or hard to guess password, uh, they basically fall into the same patterns that everyone does. Uh, and in some ways, some of the advice we get from, uh, from, uh, people can actually be counterproductive. Um, obviously, you know, you're told, you know, use capital letters, use a number, throw in, you know, some, some punctuation marks. Uh, that's known as mangling, by the way. So if you have the word password, uh, you would maybe change the A to an at sign and, you know, you, you might put uh, one of the S's as a three or something. Uh, but unfortunately, everyone thinks pretty much the same way with that. So it really doesn't do very good if you've got like hacker software, which is able to run through many thousands uh, of guesses per second. Uh, so if you've got a common password or even a mangled version of that common password, it's actually pretty easy to guess uh, in that situation. And in some ways, uh, the common advice kind of makes us overconfident. Uh, we, we think that, you know, if we've got uh, a password that does have a few numbers or punctuation signs in it, that boy, that's going to be really hard to guess. But actually, it's not when you consider how fast uh, today's software is. So I guess we should all change our passwords to something like one 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 one. No, that wouldn't be very good. But uh, <laughs> but I, I do mention in the book the best of the common advice you hear is that you take a a, a common phrase or a phrase that you can remember, like maybe uh, "May the force be with you." Uh, and convert that into a password by taking the first letter uh, of each word. Now, obviously, you wouldn't want to use something that everyone knows, like, may the force be with you. Uh, but as I say, there are problems even with that. Uh, first of all, People do tend to think of the same phrases. I mean, you wouldn't pick one that's quite so common, but still, you know, your mind works much the same way that other people's do, and that's that's the big problem here. Uh, so what I recommend is actually turning the common advice on its head. Uh, instead of, uh, of taking a phrase and converting it to a password, you should instead take a password and convert it to a phrase that you can remember as kind of a memory jog. So in other words, what I'd say is, is use an app or a website that gives you a truly random password. And if you look at those passwords, and this actually happened to me after one of my accounts was hacked and uh, the account generated a random password for me, a, a temporary password, well, looking at it, I realized, you know, it really isn't that hard to memorize this random password. And the way I did it was to convert it into, a, you know, a simple nonsense phrase. Uh, so if you have a password like RPM8T4, K-A, you might translate that to something like revolutions per minute, eight track for Kathy. 
Now, that's just a silly phrase that doesn't mean anything, but it's fairly easy to remember. And if you can remember that phrase, it'll remind you of this very random password. Now, the advantage of this is that you've got a genuinely random password, which is the gold standard uh, of security. So uh, if, if even if a hacker is using software trying to guess your password, uh, there's basically no efficient way to do that when you've got a truly random password. Uh, so I, I found that this is a very easy way to come up with uh, with you know the new passwords that everyone seems to to need to make every uh, month now, uh, and uh, I I've, I found it is quite easy to remember it this way. So now that we've gotten people to improve their athleticism and make their computers and other things more secure, let's help each other make a little bit more money. So um, some of the ways in which you describe that people can outwit others involve things like figuring out home prices and, and one what might be a good or, or not good time to decide to sell your home. Yes, exactly. I mean, as they say, it is one of your biggest investments. So you want to make sure that you don't pay some ridiculously high price, uh, like people did at the peak of the, the subprime mortgage crisis. Uh, but it's actually pretty easy to do that. Um, you know, the, the case Schiller index, which you see in all the papers, uh, gives you a good idea of where the, the real estate market is relative to the average price. Uh, so when it's higher than it should be, when it's like 128, that's telling you that, you know, it is, it is getting a little higher. Uh, in the book, I give, uh, several formulas you can use, uh, but you can basically figure out, you know, it, it's good practice to try and figure out, okay, suppose I really love this home. I want to buy it now. If I do buy it now at this possibly inflated price and the market reverts to the mean, how much would I actually lose? And if you can figure that very easily, and if it says that you stand to lose $40,000 if the market goes back to normal, well, then you you have a basis for asking yourself, you know, do I love this house enough and want to buy it now uh, that it would be worth taking that risk? And if not, uh, you know, you should wait a while, keep renting a while until the market gets more sensible. But if you're, you know, happy with that and feel it's worth it, then I would say go for it. It certainly seems like a really rational perspective to something that is often a very emotional decision. You know, people <laughs> see these housing prices go up and they, they really want to buy on the way up. Yeah, well, that's, that's a hot hand effect. Uh, they, they figure that since the prices have gone up over the past two years, that they're going to just keep going up, that this is a predictive trend. But uh, in general, it's not. So does the same thing apply to other retail prices? So for example, you know, nowadays I see when I try to book a flight on kayak, there's actually an algorithm within the program that tells me whether I should buy now with confidence or yes. wait because the <laughs> price might go down. <laughs> yes, I, I found that kayak uh, thing very useful and also the other price predicting uh, things which you can get for pretty much uh, any sort of major purchase like a television or whatever. Uh, what people don't realize is how frequently uh, prices change nowadays. Uh, it's not someone at the airline or at Amazon who actually decides what we're going to charge today for this ticket or for this television. Uh, it's actually done by an algorithm uh, that looks at what other competitors are, 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 you know, choosing. They look at the demand and so forth. Uh, and if you make an actual graph of it, and you can see that on kayak.com and decide.com, uh, I mean, it almost looks like the stock market. It just goes up and down for no apparent reason. 
but from that very fact, uh, it, it tells you that it's very important to make sure you know whether you're buying at a time when it's uh, much higher than it's been or much lower. And in fact, when you're buying an airline ticket, I mean, just waiting 10 days, you can get like a, a 20% discount or pay 20% more. Uh, so by using those algorithms, uh, I mean, you can really save lots of money. And that's something I try to, you know, grab everyone by the collar and tell them they really should be doing. So, you know, it might be difficult to outwit sort of the major airlines, but, you know, people in your own office, you know, I think that might be something that's more attainable for most of us. So, <laughs> so how do you win your office pool? Yeah. Uh, well, actually, uh, it's, it's pretty easy nowadays to get very good data on, you know, who's most likely to win in terms of uh, March Madness and Oscar pool, uh, football pool or whatever. Uh, but what you have to be aware of, uh, the goal is not simply to, to predict the most likely winners because probably other people are going to be doing the exact same thing. You have to be a little strategic about it and realize that sometimes you should go for an underdog uh, because that will increase the chance that you will be the only one who, who, you know, predicted that underdog. And depending on the scoring system, that can give you a considerable advantage. Uh, so I've been able to do this, uh, pretty amazingly actually in, uh, in Oscar pools particularly, uh, often without not knowing a whole lot about the movie's concern. Uh, you just have to realize that there is this trick of being a little bit strategic. Uh, if, if like the, the online, uh, odds tell you that one actor has, uh, a 56% chance of winning, but another one, you know, is, is not too far behind, uh, you should pick that, that's, uh, underdog, second place underdog. Because in that case, you're gonna find that people always try to overbet the favorite. And if you're competing against everyone else to get as many correct picks as possible, uh, it really does help you to, to pick an underdog or two. So let's say you've won your office pool and you go out to happy hour with your colleagues and you now want to get out of paying the bar tab with your winnings. So one thing that you advise people to do is to play rock, paper, scissors. So, so how yes. does that work? <laughs> well, I hesitate to say I advise people to do this, but <laughs> it is a very cute trick that I, I actually learned in college and fits in with, uh, with what I learned from a lot of these professional rock, paper, scissors people. The way it goes like this. Uh, wait, wait, let me just stop you. Yes. Professional rock, paper, scissors. Scissors people? <laughs> well, uh, professional is not quite the word. There are rock, paper, scissors tournaments, and there are people who are very good at it and who win uh, a fair amount of money and glory from it, as it were. Uh, and of course, they've, they've basically learned on their own uh, the psychology that I'm describing in the book, that people really are not very good at, uh, at being random. Now, the, the little trick I'm about to describe is kind of, uh, you know, it's, 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 kind of a semi-ethical version of what they do. So when, when uh, the bill comes and you want to try to get out of it, the first thing you do is say, hey, let's play rock, paper, scissors for it. And without at, waiting for the person to say, okay, you begin pumping your fist, one, two, three. Because of course, if you play the game, normally you show your throw on the count of three. Well, in that situation, there's a very good chance that your friend is going to you know, start uh, playing with you. And in that situation, you should always throw paper. Now, the reason is that, first of all, rock is the most popular choice, particularly with men. 
Uh, but that the preference for rock is greatly enhanced when the person doesn't have time to think and strategize. So in a situation like this, you generally find that maybe 60% of the time the person is going to throw rock, and so you choose uh, paper, and you have an excellent chance of winning the bet right there. But if, any, uh, if by any chance you don't, then you immediately start pumping your fist for the second throw, because you're going for two out of three, of course. So it does seem that paper is is the weaker option, <laughs> uh, just you know psychologically. But so so yeah. So so then you're you're assuming then by the second time you go through this, you'll have one. Yeah. Excellent. <laughs> so um, your previous book, Are You Smart Enough to Work at Google, explored how interviews at hot companies like Google have changed after the recession. So I just wanted to ask you briefly, what, what were those changes? And is there any data now as to whether or not they've been effective? Yeah, uh, this uh, it, it basically explores the trend of people asking much harder um, interview questions, often kind of tricky ones, uh, that are basically, uh, you know, they usually say they're intended to find creative thinkers, people who have an entrepreneurial attitude. Uh, and it used to be that this was something you encountered mostly in the technology industry, companies like Google, Microsoft, Apple, Facebook, and so forth. Uh, but particularly in the recent recession, you got a lot of more ordinary companies asking them. Now, it's a good question whether this can, whether anyone can actually demonstrate that uh, that this is a good way to to uh, to choose employees. And certainly, it's it's something they throw in. It's not the the only or main part of the interview. Uh, but there is some evidence, uh, just based on psychological tests, that you know certain questions are good at uh, at spotting creative thinking at people who are able to take you know different approaches to problems and don't just think in the conventional ways so i guess that's you know the the main point of it uh but you get some really crazy questions i mean one i discuss is how would you make an m&m uh, now, if an interviewer asks you something like that, obviously they're, they're trying to put you on the spot with something that you couldn't have learned in school, you know, that, uh, that none of your education is going to prepare you for that. And in that situation, the goal is really to say something that, uh, that doesn't sound completely stupid, uh, that basically shows that, you know, you're trying, you're, you're showing some logical reasoning and so forth. But the good news is you aren't actually uh, expected to give the correct answer because, you know, very few people do know the correct answer. So both of your books, Are You Smart Enough to Work at Google and Rock, Break, Scissors, are, are filled with wonderful logic puzzles and, and really thoughtful ideas, thought, thought-provoking ideas. So I recommend that our listeners pick them up. And I wanted to end with one last question relating to Rock, Break, Scissors. So your title has the caveat that it applies to almost everybody. So what, if anything, characterizes those people that you can't outwit with these tools? Well, uh, I think you'll find that uh, basically we're talking about human nature here and everyone pretty much, uh, you know, uh, operates the same way. Uh, I, I do mention the computer scientist uh, Claude Shannon who built, uh, who was one of the first to build a computer that would predict human behavior. And he was actually the only one who was able to beat his machine. And when people said, you know, this is amazing, how do you do this? Uh, he said that he had a very simple secret. And what he did was he essentially men mentally emulated the code of the machine and did the algorithm in his head. So he knew what the machine was going to predict, and then he did the opposite. 
Now, if you're ever dealing with someone like that, uh, I would say that uh, that it's safe to assume you're not going to be able to out with them. But for almost everyone else, uh, mere humans, I think it, it is pretty easy to to predict them, at least a good deal of the time. Well, William Poundstone, thank you for being on Inquiring Minds. Well, thank you. It's been fun. So I enjoyed this interview, and I just want to say that I'm proud that my friends and I are smarter than these people who play rock, paper, scissors in order to determine who pays the bill. And it ends up being not fair because the people who throw down rock tend tend to win, or at least people tend to throw it down more so that if you throw it on paper, you tend to win. Anyway, we had a much better way of being random. We played credit card roulette. And what that is, is everybody takes out a credit card and you put it in a baseball cap and you give the baseball cap to your server who then picks one of the cards out of the hat. And I think that that's, well, you have to shake the hat. And I think that that might be a little more uh, random. Well, yeah, that's that's certainly another way of solving that particular problem. Um, but yeah, I thought it was really interesting that that there's this t- tendency to people start out with with rock, and uh, yeah, so kind of makes sense to me. Paper seems like the weakest option, uh, but you know, I guess now it'll change throughout the world as people read his book. I often would use paper. I didn't have any like masculinity issues with using paper. <laughs> Okay. Just me. <laughs> I don't know what to say about that, Chris. <laughs> well, that was the implication in the interview was like tough guys always do rock and rock, paper, scissors so you can beat them. Just in one of the many ways in which tough guys are not always um, smart as they think they are. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So that's it for another episode. Uh, and we want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. You can find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show, on Facebook at slash Inquiring Minds Podcast, or online at motherjones.com slash Inquiring Minds. And you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. I want to let you know again that this episode of Inquiring Minds is sponsored by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment with over 150,000 titles that you can choose from. And again, for listeners of this episode, Audible is giving you an exclusive offer of a free audiobook. All you have to do is go to this specific URL to get it, audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. Once again, that's audiblepodcast.com slash Inquiring Minds. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with The Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration that includes The Atlantic, The Center for Investigative Reporting, The Guardian, Grist, Mother Jones, Slate, Wired, and The Huffington Post. Our music is provided by the award-winning producer, Rian Sheehan. And we're your hosts. I'm Chris Mooney. And I'm Indre Viscontis. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil.